As we transition from chapter 9 to 10, we enter what can really only be described as the final movement of the book of Daniel. In fact, while all kinds of different issues will be addressed, you will find these chapters, chapters 10, 11, and 12, are basically one continuous prophetic passage. There were no chapter breaks. Let's dive right in. Daniel chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. And the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. Belshazzar had been the Chaldean name given to him all the way back in Daniel 1. We're told about this message that it was true, but the appointed time was long. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. Verse 1 places Daniel in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, making him a very old man in his mid to late 80s. As we've noted before, while Cyrus was king of the entire Medo-Persian Empire, Darius the Mede had been appointed ruler over the province of Babylon. The point is that each of these men, their reigns begin at the same time, the fall of Babylon, and they run parallel with one another. Two weeks ago, in our ramp-up for the 70 weeks prophecy, Daniel 9 verse 1 places that particular vision in the first year of Darius, which would have also been the first year of Cyrus as well. And the backdrop for this glorious revelation is that Daniel's heart weighed heavily concerning the fate of Israel and God's future plan for the Hebrew people. (laughs) Not only did God answer through this prophetic vision his prayers by providing him an incredible view, a timeline of future events, but historically, we also know something else takes place between Daniel 9 and 10 that is relevant specifically to this chapter. Ezra 1, we read that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given to me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you, all his people, basically, who's ready to return for this task? Then Cyrus says, may God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem and build the house of the Lord, God of Israel. He is God. Almost immediately following the events of chapter 9, King Cyrus issues this official decree allowing a group of God's people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Not only did Cyrus' order grant the Jews legal standing and and the protection of Persia, but Ezra 1 also continues by recording how this king brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem, giving them back to their rightful owners. These holy artifacts would be allowed to return with the people to their proper place and appropriate use in the house of God. Knowing the future, where everything would ultimately play itself out, I'm sure the moment had to have been a little bittersweet as Daniel watches all of this unfold. Now keep in mind, by the time we get to chapter 10, by the time chapter 10 opens, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, about 50,000 Jews have now returned to the land. The altar had been rebuilt so that sacrifice and offerings could commence. A group of new priests have been commissioned and anointed. And the foundation of the temple was nearing completion. 
a lot of people m- make a mistake. While Ezra writes about these things, he wouldn't come actually until about 88 years later. And yet, well, undoubtedly, Incredible progress was being made. I mean, all things considered, the people are back, they're rebuilding the temple, sacrifices and offerings have commenced. By the third year of Cyrus's reign, where we are, things are not fine and dandy. In all likelihood, Daniel has already gone through his lion's den trial. But he's also received word that the temple project had stalled and an opposition mounted. According to Ezra 4, Within just two years upon their return, the people who had come to occupy the land during the Jewish exile, we read, discouraged the people of Judah. In fact, quote, they troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. I can imagine news of these developments would have bothered Daniel greatly. It's with these things in mind we're told a message was revealed to Daniel, one that he clearly understood. As we're going to see next Sunday, while a few new details will emerge, a significant portion of this vision is really nothing more than a repeating of an early prophecy, earlier prophecy recorded in Daniel 8, dealing with Persia, the rise of the Grecian Empire under the leadership of Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, and his foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Additionally, we read in verse 1 that while the message was true, sure, the appointed time, or or when these things would happen, was long. Basically, the vision Daniel records in the next few chapters, he knew, even when receiving it, that it wouldn't be fulfilled until many, many, many years into the future. As we'll see, there is still a great portion of this vision still yet to be fulfilled in human history. Verse 2, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three weeks. This report that he had received from Jerusalem, no doubt, worried him. It struck him. He's mourning for three weeks. He says, I ate no pleasant food. No meat or wine came into my mouth. He's fasting from, from meat and wine. Nor did I anoint myself at all. Basically, he refuses to bathe or to clean himself till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Though we aren't specifically told this in these verses, the context of what comes next indicates that Daniel has spent these these three weeks in very concentrated prayer. Daniel's upset. He's grieved by the news he's received. He's not throwing a pity party. Instead, he's seeking a word from God. Verse 4. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, so three days after the completion of this three-week period, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. This is the finest gold in the world. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone 
when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words. And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. According to these verses, Daniel is with a group of men, likely colleagues, by the side of the great river, the Tigris, when he receives this vision of a certain man. Though Daniel says he's the only one that could see the vision. The men that he was with were keenly aware something crazy was happening. He says a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. These men could sense the presence of a power they could not see. Additionally, at the sight of this certain man, Daniel says his strength left him and his vigor was turned to frailty. One commentator remarked that this word frailty suggests a, quote, death-like paleness combined with a grotesque wrenching of facial facial features. Completely overwhelmed and overcome by what he's seeing and hearing from this man, although we're not told what he was saying, Daniel says that he collapses with his face to the ground as if he were in a deep sleep. Verse 11, Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. Now, Daniel's already freaked out by what he's seeing, this vision. Now, feeling a hand touch him causes him to lose it. Well, he says to me, now, pause, we'll learn that this is an angel that's speaking to Daniel, that touches him and speaks to him. Because he remains nameless, it it indicates this is not Gabriel who we've seen in prior visions. So he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, which I love. This is the second time from a second source God's love is affirmed to Daniel. Man greatly beloved, understand, the angel says the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Before we continue... We do need to address the identity of the man in Daniel's initial vision with the context of what we just read. Basically, is the certain man the same as the one whose hand touched Daniel or someone altogether different? And let me explain why this is worthy of our consideration. If the certain man that caused this elderly prophet to hit the ground is also the unnamed angel in verse 10 who touched Daniel and then continues to to converse with him for the next two chapters, then the description we have provided in verses 5 and 6 should be interpreted as being that of an angelic being of some kind. And to be completely fair, this position is entirely possible. However, it should also be pointed out, the text doesn't say the certain man Daniel sees in his vision is the same as the one who touched him. In fact, it's possible the angel who touched and spoke with Daniel and the certain man described for us in verses 5 and 6 are two different beings. And if that's the case, then who is the certain man in Daniel's vision? The first clue as to this certain man's identity are the similarities found in Daniel's description and the one of the glorified Jesus provided by the Apostle John in Revelation 1. Let me read for you John's account, connecting the parallels. John says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, 
And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet. Now, in the capacity here of Jesus presently acting as our high priest in heaven, we know the garment, well, it would have been linen. John says that he was girded about the chest with a golden band. Daniel says his waist was girded with gold. His head, John says, and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Daniel says his face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes, John writes, like a flame of fire. Daniel says his eyes were like torches of fire. John says his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Daniel observes that his arms and feet were like burnished bronze in color. John says the voice, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Daniel says that the sound of his words were like the voice of a multitude. John says he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Daniel says his body was like beryl, which was, was a yellowish color, similar to the sun. Like, there is no question. This certain man that Daniel sees in chapter 10, his description is almost identical to the description of the heavenly resurrected Jesus provided by John some 650 years earlier, uh, later. Now, the second clue that points to this man being a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus can be found in the similar reactions of Daniel and John to his appearance, to his presence. John writes in Revelation 1, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Daniel says that when he saw him, no strength remained in him. His vigor was turned to frailty. And then he adds, while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Again, as if he were dead. Same posture. Now the final clue, that this vision of a certain man was in actuality an appearance of Jesus Christ some 350, some, some 530 years before the incarnation. This final clue, it's not as obvious but it is just as spectacular. In Acts chapter 9, we read that as Paul, Saul at the time, came near Damascus, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell on the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then Jesus said, Arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now, note, And the men who journeyed with Saul stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Isn't that interesting that Daniel is the only one that sees the vision, but those that were with him recognized that something was going on. They just couldn't connect the two. Now, before we move on, please know, Jesus is not only presently alive, but his countenance and demeanor, it's radical. In fact, is illustrated by the reactions of two people that came in contact with the resurrected Jesus in glory, John and Daniel. We know the aura of Jesus will instantly drive every man or woman to their face in adoration the very moment they enter his presence. My friend, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you need to know the day is coming when everyone, including yourself, will find themselves face to face with the resurrected Jesus. 
it's a sure bet. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, the Apostle Paul writes, quote, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not a single soul entering eternity will be in denial regarding the Lordship of Jesus. For some, Jesus will be forever known as the judge who poured out on them everlasting punishment. For others, Jesus will be forever known as the Savior on whom their judgment was poured out on so that they might enjoy everlasting life. Friend, how you see Jesus today will determine how you view Him much later on. Let's continue. Verse 12. Then He, the angel, said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. Two years earlier, Daniel had received the 70 weeks prophecy, giving him a specific timeline for God's future dealings with Israel. Then Daniel watched with amazement as Cyrus allowed the Jews to return home and rebuild the temple. It was incredible. That said, with news that the rebuilding of the temple was not going smoothly, Daniel's heart, there's no question, had been filled with with a doubt leading to a fear. Like Daniel knows much about the future, but questions abound. Like he wants to understand. So for 24 days, before this angel arrived, some 24 days earlier, Daniel had humbled himself before the Lord and prayed for three weeks. And yet following these 21 days, Daniel, he's still in the dark. God hadn't responded. Daniel's afraid maybe God wouldn't. (laughs) Do not fear, Daniel. Understand, in the place of his fear concerning the future, God does two important things in Daniel's life. First, God reminds Daniel he was present. In the context of his doubts, this awesome revelation of Jesus was designed to remind Daniel that he was not only there, but his power, his authority, his majesty to remind him he was very much in control. The second thing that God does is He reiterates His Word. Again, much of this vision that Daniel's going to see is nothing more than just a repeating of what God has already revealed to Daniel. I must say that it's only natural to look around at the chaos occurring in our world and be overcome with fear. That's natural. Churches are closed while abortion clinics and casinos remain operational. Rioters in the streets are ignored while pastors who dare open their doors are threatened with arrest. Equal protection under the law no longer exists as our courts have seemingly granted governmental bureaucrats the freedom to pick and choose winners and losers. Sadly, the fourth estate has become nothing more than the propaganda arm of a progressive cancer. Today, there is much to fear. Aside from this global pandemic, 
the economic implications, whether or not it's safe to send our kids back to school, our cities burn while our elective representatives fiddle. Shutdowns have crushed small businesses and decimated family savings while the elites in our society seem to prosper. The police are demonized and defunded as criminal behavior decimates vulnerable minority communities. The racist actions of a few towards blacks have now become the moral justification to alienate, segregate, and persecute whites for no other reason than their skin color of which they were born. Our history, while checkered, is being erased by the mob, ironically, meaning we're destined to repeat it. The belief all lives matter has now been branded as systematic racism and will get you fired and thrown out of the public square. We live in a day when it's considered an anathema to stand for the singing of the national anthem because everyone else is kneeling in protest. You know, as we approach a pivotal election cycle this November, the American people have been divided. We are divided into two warring factions. Worse yet, there is zero commonality. There's no common ground anymore. And beyond that, we know neither side will accept the results of the presidential election. Our country, I don't know if you feel it, is sitting on a powder keg ready to blow. <laughs> when the silent majority in our nation, when they're finally pushed too far beyond their limits, I'm afraid the results will be catastrophic. Should any of us really be surprised that over the last three months, gun and ammo sales have reached an all-time high. People turn on the news, you and I, and they're afraid. It doesn't matter what channel you turn on. There's fear, and there's reasons to be afraid. Even Christians who know the future are susceptible to such a tendency. And yet, as we see with Daniel, the key to fear and worry and anxiety is to get our focus off of those things and back onto who Jesus is and what God's word has to say concerning the future. Friend, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. God is here, Jesus is on the throne, and he is very much in control of the chaos. <laughs> How amazing it must have been for Daniel, to have this angel confirm that God had indeed heard his prayer and sent this angel with a response. And yet, think about it. If on the first day he started praying, this angel had been sent with an answer, why was he just now showing up 24 days later? Verse 13, we begin to find the answer. The angel continues, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, which would have been the entire three weeks Daniel had been praying. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. <laughs> Let's pause. Let's pause for a minute and kind of consider what it, what it is we just read, right? Daniel's been praying for 21 days, got nothing from the Lord. Silence. 
at the end of these three weeks, Daniel likely naturally concludes God wasn't going to answer his prayer. So he decides to get back to his normal routine, get back to business. Then three days later, this angel appears to him after this vision of a certain man. The angel confirms that the Lord had heard his prayers on the first day and that he had been sent immediately with an answer from God. But the angel, this is where things get interesting, he, he, he continues by providing kind of the reason to Daniel for his delay. While he'd been dispatched the moment Daniel made his request to the Lord, he says the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood him 21 days. He then explains, I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia and wouldn't have made it to you, Daniel, if it hadn't been for the intervention of Michael, one of the chief princes, who came to help me. So you get that? <laughs> what? Like that's okay, right? Like, not only is this a gnarly passage because of what's being described or implied, but, you know, it's an important passage, and here's why. These verses give us a unique insight into the spiritual realm around us. As a result, I want to take just a few minutes and dissect this text in order to make a few important observations. For starters, like, I think it's safe to say the prince of the kingdom of Persia and the kings of Persia are not a reference to humans, but some kind of supernatural angelic beings. Let's be real. <laughs> no mortal man or woman has the strength or ability to take on, subdue an angel. Not going to happen. Furthermore, there is no doubt the exchange being described had to have taken place in an unseen spiritual dimension and not within our physical world. God sends an angel from heaven with a message to Daniel in response to his prayer. Daniel's in Babylon. On his way, the angel says he was withstood and detained for 21 days by other angels. Like I should add, the interaction of this angel with Daniel, his physical appearance, ability to speak with him using human language, as well as the fact he actually touches Daniel, tells us these angelic beings are interdimensional. Like meaning they can appear and disappear in the physical realm, the physical world, at will. Again, the Apostle Paul will write in Hebrews 13, verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. Here's why. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Well, most of the time, angels appear to be used by God as messengers. Their ministry isn't just limited to being the divine postal service. In fact, later in the chapter, we'll see this angel encourage and minister practically to Daniel. Again, in Hebrews, we read, Are angels not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? We can also reasonably conclude that because these angels are directly prohibiting an important message sent by God from reaching its intended destination, the prophet Daniel in Babylon, by actively thwarting the messenger, this other angel, we can conclude the beings that are described are evil. And what we call fallen angels or demons, basically they had joined Satan, Lucifer, and his rebellion. 
In addition to these things, our text infers that within this angelic world, operating in this unseen spiritual dimension, there is a hierarchy and delineation of authority. Angels and demons alike, the Bible says, are given jobs. They have particular responsibilities. They have to submit to angelic leaders who occupy positions above them. They even possess ranks. From our text, not only do we have the prince, who's assigned to the kingdom of Persia, implying an organizational structure, like his responsibility is the kingdom of Persia. But these kings of Persia appear to be under his direct jurisdiction. Finally, and this will blow your mind, but the text is clear that with regards to angels themselves, there exists a diversity of both power and stature as well. If you take a dive into this topic, you will find the Bible describing different kinds of angelic beings, meaning not all angels are created the same. There are angels more powerful than others. Traditionally, we know of the seraphim. These are angels that exist around the throne room, around the throne of God, praising the Most High continually. We also have cherubim, angels who are commissioned to guard specific things, like the tree of life. The Ark of the Covenant had cherubim. And yet, Ephesians 6 and Ephesians 6, Paul, he expands this list much further. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and note, principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. <laughs> Lots of different kinds. One expert on this topic came across this this week in my prep. He makes a compelling case that there may actually be a difference between what we consider to be fallen angels and demons. Referencing where Jude describes angels who did not keep their proper domain, it may be that demons are a special class of fallen angels desperate to indwell a physical body of some kind. It can be pointed that the implications, the, 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 the reason for this is some type of trippy interactions with humans documented in Genesis 6. You can dive into that on your own. Now, regarding the angelic interactions described in this passage, it's interesting that this one angel sent by God was no match for this Persian delegation of fallen angels. That said, this Persian delegation of fallen angels collectively was no match for this angel Michael, one of the chief princes. As only one of three named angelic beings, Gabriel and Lucifer being the other two. Again, according to Jude, Michael seems to be kind of at the pinnacle. He, he's uniquely referred to as the archangel. In Revelation 12, we're told that it's Michael who leads the angelic host into battle against Satan at the end, gaining the victory, binding Satan and casting him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. The idea being is that Michael and probably Lucifer are, are equals, at least in the sense of their power. In Daniel 12, we're going to see this. But Michael, it would appear, his main assignment, main purpose, 
was to stand guard over Israel. I know, it's all trippy. There are, though, two big points that you can take away from a text like this. First, (laughs) there is so much more happening around you than you can see. Please know that. Like Daniel thought God's silence to his prayers may have been indifference. What Daniel doesn't know was that there was a war being waged in the spiritual realm, prohibiting the messenger from delivering God's message. The angel was sent, but he was kidnapped. And he would have stayed kidnapped if it hadn't been for Michael coming in and busting him out. Daniel's oblivious to all of this. I need to add, this particular occurrence, like what's being described, is unique, kind of to an Old Testament context. Like, this doesn't happen to us. Here's why. Because Jesus is presently acting as our high priest in heaven, and because we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, there are no demonic forces that have the power to limit or restrict our interactions back and forth with our Heavenly Father. That said, please do not be ignorant of the fact this very moment, as I'm speaking, all around you exists a spiritual dimension as real and tangible as the physical one that you can see. In fact, it's our realization of this reality that is critically important if we're to be effective in our calling. 2 Kings chapter 6, we read an interesting story of how the servant of Elisha the prophet wakes up early one morning only only to discover the city that they had been staying in, was surrounded by a great Syrian army seeking to arrest the prophet. He's filled with fear. He rushes in. He's freaking out to Elisha. And to calm his concerns, we then read, 2 Kings 6, verse 17, that Elisha prayed. He said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Christian, you need to know God is on your side. As believers, living in a fallen world, under the control, the influence of Satan, we must not be ignorant of what's really going on in the unseen realm. Not only are there evil, satanic forces motivating so much of the human behavior we see in the world, from racism to terrorism to greed and lawlessness, violence and brutalities, the murdering of the unborn, Christian persecution. There is evil in this world. But your power to stand in this physical world, to be useful to Jesus and His kingdom, can only happen when your strength is found and the spiritual realm. To this point in 1 John chapter 4, the apostle writes, he reminds us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, but you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. 
Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because, and this is what's important, he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. The second big idea you should take with you from Daniel's experience centers on why God would allow this angelic conflict to delay his response for 24 days. I mean, let's be real. It's not as though God was somehow powerless to intervene or that these demonic forces could operate contrary to the will of God. As illustrated, we see this illustrated over and over and over again in the earthly ministry of Jesus. The entire spiritual realm, all demons, principalities, and powers are beholden to the commands of Christ Jesus, their creator. In light of this, I believe God allowed this delay in order to teach Daniel an important lesson that's equally applicable to you and I. Remember that this chapter begins with Daniel explaining that he'd been in mourning for three weeks over the bad news he'd received from Jerusalem. As he prayed and sought the Lord for 21 days, he also adds that he ate no pleasant food, he abstained from meat and wine, he even refused to bathe or anoint himself. The clear and obvious frustration for Daniel was that in spite of all of these things, God seemed to be silent. Now, what makes that interesting is that in verse 12, the angel tells Daniel what? From the first day you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come because of your words. You see, the implications of God sending an answer on the first day tells us that everything Daniel had done over these three weeks in order to elicit a divine response, the time, the fasting, the self-denial, hadn't been necessary at all. Christian, it's a shame, but so much of our understanding of prayer has been tragically warped by legalism. <laughs> we pray long prayers, filling them with big words we often don't understand in order to sound holy, holier than we are. We even couple these things with fasting, self-deprecation, depriving. And we do all of this often in an attempt to what? To conjure up the favor and response of God. The irony of ironies is none of these things are required. That God loves us. And our relationship with Him has no basis on our merit, deservedness, or, or ability to do things to cause Him to care any more about us than He already does. You see, Daniel's approach missed the mark. Access to the throne room of God is given, not earned, through His grace. Not our goodness. Not our works. God is not a genie that you have to rub the right way in order to get God to respond to you. Instead, He's a doting father. Super excited when his kids want to spend time with Him. It's not an accident. The prayer that Jesus modeled for the disciples, right, contained only 66 words. 
was simplistic and straightforward. In fact, one of the most successful prayers in all of the Bible contained only three words. As Peter begins to sink below the waters of Galilee, he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Guess what happened? Jesus heard him, heard his prayer, and immediately responded. In fact, it was the religious Pharisees who prayed a lot like Daniel that Jesus took umbrage with. In Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9, we read that Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He tells this story. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Who's the worst? The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breasts saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus concludes, he says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. For the sake of time, we're actually going to have to stop here with verse 14. We'll get back to things next Sunday. But I must reiterate the reality. The first 14 verses of Daniel 10 should encourage all of us that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the uncertainty around us, we are to fear not. Yes, there are evil forces at work beyond what we can see. But greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. We are filled with the Spirit of God. In the place of fear, may I encourage you to look to Jesus, the resurrected Lord. He's not abandoned us. His presence is here. Things are not happening out of his control, and his word concerning the future remains true. It's sure. While Daniel needed to learn what wasn't needed for God to hear and respond to his prayer, it had nothing to do with the time he spent or the things he denied himself of. Our passage does affirm what is absolutely necessary concerning our prayer. Friend, it was the very moment Daniel set his heart and humbled himself before his God that the Lord heard his voice and responded. So Father Lord, we come before you lifting our voice in humility